0: You are listening to The Interactome, a podcast by a group of young researchers who want to connect you to the world of science by sharing their stories and perspectives. Just in case their bosses are listening, they want to remind you that the opinions expressed here are their own. They also want to remind you not to take anything they say as medical or professional advice, as they are not doctors. Not yet, anyway. Stay tuned about that. And, without further ado, welcome the Interactome.
1: Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Interactome. I'm Joe, uh, one of our many hosts, and I'm here with a few other good people tonight.
2: I'm Natalie, I am also a host on the Interactome, um... If you're familiar with the show, you're familiar with me. So, so happy to have you back. And if you, um, this is your first time listening, um, I work in corporate communications. Oh,
3: fancy. And apparently you are the most memorable person here, right? (laughs) I don't know about that. (laughs) Uh, um, Well, I'm Sam. Uh, I'm also a host on this podcast. You have... You have a decent chance of having heard my voice if you've picked out another random episode to listen to before this one. Uh, And uh, I was talking a lot about statistics today at my job, which is doing um, process engineering in the biopharmaceutical industry.
1: And uh, we, tonight we have a very special episode for you. This one I've been excited to do for quite some time now. Um, And yeah, we have a very special guest with us tonight. Um... This, uh, sorry, Natalie. I was just
2: going to say, one could say it's a family affair. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. Why so, is no one
2: laughing louder?
3: <laughs> do we hear eye rolls on audio?
2: Yeah, uh,
1: yeah, we can add that. I think that. you can now. <laughs> so yeah, um, the, our guest tonight is uh, my dad, former FBI or retired FBI special agent, Scott McGon. Um, who I uh, will I, I I can't refer to him as Scott McGon. I, I can only refer to him as Dad. I hope you all understand. Uh, so, yeah, Dad, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Um, Joe, no offense, I
3: I can't refer to him as Dad. I will be referring to him as Scott. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah, that's all fine. Whatever gets us through.
1: <laughs> yeah. So um, I think one of the reasons I I wanted my dad to join us is because he's been. Really, the example of in what a like a good investigator is for me, um certainly like my the kinds of investigations that I do as a life scientist uh, as a molecular biologist are obviously very different from the kinds of investigations that we'll be getting into tonight um but like seeing kind of the there there are a lot of things that are very similar between investigating crimes cases that involve people and just investigating what happens with molecules like obviously there are differences as well but um i think a lot of the key themes about uh like just how one investigates well um are there things that my dad set a really good example for and that i i try to emulate in my work uh, though obviously um uh, I think uh, my work's a little less high stakes in a lot of contexts, um, but uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's where I'm coming from with this, and I'm really excited to have you on, Dad, so uh, thanks for joining us.
0: Hey, thanks, Joe. I, I, I think you're right. There are a lot of similarities in investigations throughout the sciences and throughout the criminal justice system as well. You don't see <laughs> them usually in the same sentence, uh, both of those topics but investigation is investigation in many forms. Uh, So for instance, uh, we tend to have, in the uh, criminal world, have slippery subjects. um, People Mm -hmm. who obfuscate where they are or what they're doing. Um, And I'm sure the same is so with with the sciences, where you have solutions that are elusive uh, molecules that don't react the way you expect them to. I'm sure there are some of those similarities as well. Oh, yes.
3: <laughs> oh, yeah.
2: Those molecules yeah. aren't committing crimes, though, which I think relates hey. to kind of what... I mean, maybe. Maybe they are. <laughs> speak speak I'm for a... yourself.
0: <laughs> I'm sure there are some uh, biological or bioscience investigators who felt that the reactions that they have gotten into the test tube are criminal in nature so uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it didn't go according to my hypothesis this is a crime <laughs> <So>.
1: <laughs> what a quote I, I i do relate to that honestly um yeah i think uh i guess kind of getting into this I, i'm super dad i'd be very excited to for you to share a little bit of your experience with uh, us and the rest of our listeners kind of some of the the key themes about investigation that you've kind of touched upon and uh, seen through your work. Um, Super curious. Uh, One thing, side note to everyone, uh, my dad always has great stories. So uh, one reason I'm very excited to chat.
0: (laughs) Well, there are a lot of key themes that can be brought to the fore when talking about investigations, both in science and uh, in the criminal justice world, uh, one of those themes that I like to start with is uh, to keep an open mind and when you start you never an investigation you never really know how it's going to end up and that hypothesis that you have at the beginning of an investigation, uh, whether you're a scientific investigator or, or a criminologist as it were. Um, that hypothesis can change over time based on the evidence that's presented. Uh, What you start out with is not always what you're going to get. I had a uh, a particular case that started out as people just doing a copyright violation. And in the end, a year and a half later, it ended up being uh, an investigation that involved organized crime, overseas mafias, uh, other governments. Um, people who were called some of the deadliest people in the world, uh, counterintelligence operatives, and I thought it was a copyright violation. So uh, it didn't, really didn't end up like I thought it should mm-hmm. when I started. Um, and and part of that, keeping an open mind, uh, you need to maintain some mental flexibility. Uh, another example I can give is when the FBI was called up to a case in New Hampshire, and unfortunately, this elderly woman who was on her evening walk had been shot to death, um, which is a, a complete tragedy, and even more so, they couldn't figure out where the bullet was that killed her, and it had traversed her neck from right to left as she was walking up a hill, and so they were looking directly to her left for that bullet. Um, in order to find that particular piece of evidence. And eventually they couldn't find it after three or four days of looking and they called the FBI and being part of our evidence response team and doing bullet trajectory as kind of a hobby of mine uh, at the time. uh, I I went along on the crime scene to take a look at it. Now recognize that the crime had been committed three or four months earlier by the time they called the FBI. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like a Hail Mary pass for them. So we went up and looked at the scene and looked at the autopsy photos, looked at the, looked at the evidence of it that was available, and spoke with the criminal investigators who were in charge of the case. And it turns out that uh, in looking at the st- scene and standing on that spot, and talking with my colleagues, I told them they were looking for the bullet in the wrong place. And they said, mm. you know, they couldn't believe that I, I would say something like that because she was walking up the hill. Um, if you're, let's use a clock face, if she was walking towards 12 o'clock from the center, um, the bullet came from 3 o'clock to 9 o'clock. So directly mm. from the right side of her neck um, through to the left side of her neck. and I said no, because a woman walking at night would always look behind her to her right if she was on the left-hand side of the road. She would look behind her to her right for somebody approaching her, especially in a car. It was uh, someone shot her from a vehicle. Um, She would look to her right to, to see what was going on. And in doing so, she would change the angle and thus the trajectory of the bullet, where it came from, And where it went. And so, based on those thoughts, um, I established a new trajectory for the bullet and figured out based on doing a number of different mathematical calculations based on the different kinds of bullets that it could have been. um, And we came up with a new trajectory, long story short. And in looking around and getting our evidence response team up there, a bunch of FBI agents searching the ground with metal detectors and looking for this bullet, uh, my trajectory was off by about two feet uh, in the end. (laughs) So uh, it was two feet off of the laser line that I established. And uh, so big win for us, especially in the eyes of the local police. Um, So by not keeping our mind closed, by uh, trying to think of the entire scenario, And bringing an element of practical thinking to it, uh, we were able to find the piece of evidence and find the bullet.
2: And can I ask a question kind of that that came to mind um, while you were talking about that? I always, you know, I try to keep an open mind in my life, I suppose. Um, We all like to think we do. (laughs) Right, right, of course. But I feel like, you know, it's human nature to always you know, it's easy to get your judgment clouded or, or I don't know if judgment's the right word, but kind of the way you perceive things. How do you, to me, keeping an open mind seems something you have to proactively do. Um, how do you do that? Any, any tips for kind of for, for that?
0: Well, it's funny. I, I, I think a lot of us like to think of Occam's razor when we, uh, Look at crimes and, you know, if you're if you're hearing hoofbeats, don't think, you know, you think horses, not zebras, you know. So uh, uh, there's that kind of thing in our thinking. But more importantly, as far as keeping an open mind, you have to start to deduce what is possible and what is not. And, uh, you know, I don't want to geek out too much and talk about Spock, but, you know, when, uh, (laughs) please, uh, you know, please do. Okay. But, uh, (laughs) for those Trekkies out, Trekkers or Trekkies out there, um, once you figure out what is impossible, everything else, even though it would be improbable is still possible. So uh, in order to keep an open mind, you have to, figure out what did absolutely could not happen. And then everything else is still on the table. And even though it may be unlikely and, and sometimes you see that in cases where things are unlikely, but yet they still happen.
3: I think yeah. that that's true with any scientist, right? I think we all encounter that. I also, I also think that your story is really interesting because um, uh, like talking about like ballistics and stuff, and you're talking about like lasers and math and all these things that you're picturing, like, like a, you know, the sort of like that CSI context sort of thing, at the end of the day, it was just human judgment that enabled you to, you know, solve the understanding how people work more than it was all the trigonometry and lasers. And I think that that's like, kind of wild to hear all that in like the same sort of thing. It's like, no, well, how do people react to a situation is, was far more important than all the math was. And that's, that's kind of, I think a really, really interesting takeaway. Yes, yeah, Sam. In,
0: in, in certain situations, many people will act the same way. Um, many people will act in their own self-interest. They'll act for their own survival, certainly. Um, it, not every situation, but uh, in many ways, we're more alike than we are dissimilar in how we react to things.
2: Especially when it comes to behavior.
0: Yes. Yes. And in this instance, Most people walking at night, if a car drives up on their right side from behind, they'll turn their head to look and to see who it is. They're probably not going to identify them. They're probably not going to know the car, especially at night. But that's something that everybody does when they're out walking, Um, especially if they're not on a sidewalk, if they're on the street. So, and that was the situation in this particular case. And, and, uh, and having that background and understanding that about a lot of people helped find the bullet in four hours whereas the police department had looked for three or four days so Mm -hmm. it was a good result
1: yeah i think the the other thing it seems like is that this kind of expanding this concept of keeping an open mind to all the other investigations that you've done throughout the years um for context um my, my dad was in the FBI for uh, 27 years. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, went by quick. I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, over 27 years of investigating, um, like I think that theme has been very important for, um, just keeping an eye, making sure you're considering, like, all the different aspects of, like, what could be happening in a case, like, who, who could or could not be innocent, but, like, really keeping things open as open as possible um until you have evidence to help make you think otherwise um like it seems like that that is like one of the most essential things that um i personally i want to that i've taken away from this uh like this theme that my, my dad's really shared a bit with me throughout like many different stories and anecdotes throughout the years like just keeping, you know, like if, if for me at the bench, like keeping an open mind about like how and why things might be happening is really important. If we want to understand how a drug may be working and for a patient or um, how like something that we like a totally new phenomenon may, may be occurring. Um, yeah.
3: It's also though about being persistent, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a really, really good point. <laughs>
0: yeah. it, but also persistence with a purpose. And, you know, we see a lot of times where people keep banging their heads against the wall, trying to do the same things and expecting different results. Um, so when you run into a dead end, you've got to try something else. And that's one of the keys uh, to persistence is, is trying different things as you move along and moving away from things that don't work for you. Uh, you've got to keep moving forward. And finding out what doesn't work is equally as important uh, as a step in uh, discovery.
2: And I think you have a great case example of this, too, where, you know, you had reached a dead end, right? Uh, or what seemed to be a dead end. I think this is a case that we kind of chatted about a little earlier. And, and things took a turn, for sure.
0: <laughs> it did take a <laughs> turn. Uh, we had a case in New York City a number of years ago. And uh, New York and and the film industry in general had a problem with people stealing films uh, prior to their release. And they did that in a number of different ways. And it appeared, based on the research that was being done at the time, that these films were being taken by two gangs in New York City. And as I was stationed in New York City at the time, I got the ticket, as we say, and uh, caught the case and uh, had to go investigate that. And uh, one of the main ways of distributing uh, film at that time was through DVDs. And so they were doing DVD piracy. piracy. And uh, these particular pilots, like uh, pirates, like I said, were uh, from two different gangs that I got to know um, from a distance at first. And then I uh, became introduced to some of their members. Uh, But during the course of that, we started some undercover work and started buying some of these uh, master DVDs on the street and in New York City. And our contact for buying them was a lifelong criminal. And we started working with him. And eventually he said that our FBI undercover agent owed him extra money and that wasn't true because we were fairly meticulous with our expenditures and our record keeping and he certainly was not being a criminal and so uh uh and, he was
2: and sorry to cut you off they didn't know that you were the fbi at the time uh, certainly you?
0: certainly not our, our undercover okay. agent just, was hey, pretty, good the, pretty good at that and so um uh he wanted to be paid, and he wasn't going to work with us uh, again a- as we were building evidence through the purchases of this, uh, these master DVDs. They called them masters, but they would make you know thousands and thousands of copies from these, these DVDs. He, w- he didn't want to work with us anymore unless we paid him extra money. And, and so I said, but we don't owe him extra money, and uh, he's not a very nice man, uh, to say the least. Um, i'm sure we came up with other words for that but um we <laughs> i told him you know if he, if we pay him what he says uh we owe him he'll probably either a think we're cops or worse think we're suckers and he'll continue to rip us off and i said let's not deal with him anymore and that was a really tough decision because at that time he was our lead but by maintaining an open mind uh I talked to my colleagues and we decided to open our own storefront um, in in an undercover fashion. Nobody knew it was the FBI running the store um, in Harlem, New York. Um, And so uh, we opened that undercover store and started working with his competition. And what we ended up doing is using the store to lower the price of the product on the street which caused concern amongst all the people who were selling it that the price was all of a sudden going down and they were losing customers to to us. And so that forced <laughs> a sit-down between all the main players in New York City. And by doing that, we could show that they were a uh, corrupt organization, in fact, um, as part of a RICO charge that we were trying to make at the time. and. They all came to the meeting so we could all identify who was who and record who they were. And so it was really the best evidence and evidence that we couldn't have gotten if we were still dealing with our original supplier. And so that change in strategy uh, led us to get much better information. And we ended up arresting 27 people in that ring. So And so... Oh the question uh, for
3: context, to, to
0: get for context, what
3: does Rico stand? For?
0: Uh, Rico <laughs> uh, Rico is racketeer influenced and corrupt organizations. so through their racketeering activity, which can be loan sharking, money laundering, all these kind of crimes, robbery stealing, copyright violations uh through through all of those um predicate offenses, they would be called in the legal terms. Through all those activities, you have an organization of people who are associated in fact. They don't work for each other. There's no corporate charter. Um, you know, there's no uh, headquarters like General Electric or IBM or some other company. Uh, that, but they are associated in fact. And they couldn't be working, doing their criminal activity if they weren't associated with each other. So, in fact, they are a corrupt organization. And so uh, we were trying to do that and develop those predicate offenses I mentioned. And we're able to do that through them all meeting together and discussing the price of DVD masters on the street and how we have to raise our price like everybody else. So there was certainly collusion amongst the main players on the street
3: he did that by making them angry by undercutting their prices yes
0: that's exactly what we did so uh yes Uh, um and that was our change of strategy one thing didn't work we ran into a dead end so we changed our strategy and that was our plan uh so yes sam we uh we made them angry and it certainly worked
1: wow yeah i think um Correct me if I'm wrong, but that, uh, that case ended up being pretty big. Um,
0: yes. Uh, correctly. Uh, according to the Motion Picture Association of America, uh, we stopped 50 percent of uh, movie piracy in the United States and 25 percent of movie piracy worldwide and uh, uh, in a number of different countries. And so uh, that probably equated in the states to 1.6 billion dollars in losses that were averted through this case. So it did have a strong impact. Yeah.
3: Was that the case you mentioned at the beginning of the episode? Was that? uh, uh
0: it did. Yeah, with the uh, spies and organized crime <laughs> yeah. overseas, and yeah, we haven't touched on that, but yeah, all of that ended up being involved. I ended up taking the fbi g5 jet overseas to the middle east and meeting people uh, of an interesting nature and yeah there's a much longer episode on on that trip
1: (laughs) uh... oh yes so i
2: guess um uh one one thing about me i'm not good under pressure right? I, the situation you're describing sounds like hell to me. I would want to run out the door and just be like, you can keep the TVDs. Like you can just keep pirating. Like, all that's great. (laughs) How do you keep an open mind while kind of staying level headed, I guess, in that situation? It's something that I'm kind of having a hard time. I I just can't picture myself in that situation ever. Um, But I- (laughs) You know any tactics where you're kind of you know when you're in the zone, I guess, or when you know
0: well when uh if you're under a lot of immediate pressure and for FBI agents usually that's danger um so you know guns are out, it's dangerous okay. um or you're in a room with really bad people who are known to do really bad things um then y- you do have to keep your cool and think your way out and You're not paid for your muscle. You're paid for your brains um, as an FBI agent. And so uh, you have to think of scenarios. And usually you think of them ahead of time. If this happens, what do I do as a contingency plan? So it's not all in the moment, although that certainly happens. And sometimes you just have to react. Um, But usually we go in with multiple contingency plans into a situation. So if they say this, then we say that um if uh you know there there's always an escape route um and uh uh contingency plans afoot when we go in so so we take the pressure off ourselves natalie um in in that okay. instance and and we always have backup and uh we don't go into these scenarios without people outside uh watching our backs and uh uh so so for for us we, we Safety is very important because, you know, we lose people. Um, so we're very cognizant of that. And uh in, in in trying to keep an open mind under pressure, um, pressure in the lab might be different. Although I get it, it's definitely pressure. Um, it's different than mm-hmm. uh pressure on an FBI agent in the field, but uh you still um you have grants that you have to use that money wisely. Um, you have to, you have time limitations on what you can accomplish. Um, sometimes you don't have the supplies that you need. All of these things cause pressure and, uh, and, and contingency planning, uh, re even in the lab really helps, um, to take that pressure oh, yeah. off is, is my point of view.
3: And of course, like most laboratories also do have things in them that are dangerous you know, there's a reason why we have locked doors on most oh of these I, i've <laughs> like, been in, there's a lab not so, far
0: from here where if the material touches the oxygen it explodes so <laughs> i get okay. it i get it yeah
3: yeah it's like uh and in that case you know you just have to be aware of you know what what you have to deal with the sorts of problems that you can have you know there's uh that was something those contingency plans are something that usually you know, I start a new place. I go, okay, so what is our plan if XYZ thing happens? Because, you know, everybody's got a different situation. One place you'll be working with something that's biohazardous. Another place you work with something that, uh, you know, it might be completely safe unless you mix it with some other completely innocuous thing. And then you have like a, you know, an issue with the gas or something like that. But it's just interesting because, like, you know, those are the same things. And it's the same thing, too, is you also have backup. There's always someone you can call. It's like, okay, yeah, I screwed up. There's always the phone number on the wall. For yeah. That, you know? and, and <laughs> I, just I, about that.
0: I, I will, will say this uh, uh, to the group that uh, I did a lot of work with Moderna uh, during the COVID outbreak before they had a vaccine. And uh, there was Operation Warp Speed was started by the Trump administration back then and uh, got us, uh, the FBI and the U.S. government involved because the government was giving one point $2 billion to uh, various companies to try to develop a vaccine. And so a lot of pressure because r- in real life, people were dying. So there is a lot of pressure in the lab sometimes, depending on the circumstances. <laughs> and, and I know that they were working on multiple tracks at each of the major pharmaceutical companies involved in that in order to try to find the, the cure or the vaccine, I should say, for COVID at that point in time. So definitely a lot of pressure. Uh, I hope all of that answered your question, Natalie.
1: Yeah. Also, that that whole experience uh, working with Operation Warp Speed could be the subject of another episode entirely, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, but yeah, that, like, very... I have to say, like, watching that kind of from the background, like, it, it was some pretty cool stuff. Um, so...
0: Yeah, yeah. It, but um, it was interesting when they said you're team leader for Tiger Team Alpha, and I said, No, I'm not, <laughs> 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 I don't even know what that is. And then, uh, but uh, uh, that was a phone call one morning. So, you, you want to talk about acting under pressure and to find out what that was, and it was the uh, uh, basically the government security team for uh, for preventing the covid vaccine once it was discovered from being accessed by some of our foreign adversaries and so uh we knew because huh. we knew there were many people out there looking to get the vaccine and so uh some other different kind of pressure being being brought to bear but uh you know in in the moment i was like what's tiger team alpha and and why are you talking <laughs> like that <laughs> and and then i realized it was the department of defense that was footing the bill for uh-huh. all of this, so everybody talked in military terminology, which I didn't understand at the time. So it was all kind of amusing to me, <laughs> but serious but I amusing. Oh
1: so, yeah. I think another aspect of that, correct me if I'm wrong, was just kind of making sure that supplies were safe in general and available for people.
0: Yeah, supplies, but uh, um, supplies of vaccines. certainly. Once uh, there was a whole yeah. uh, network of operators planning on transporting the vaccine to different areas around the country. And the government was footing the bill for that. So they wanted to make sure it didn't get into the wrong hands at any point and, uh, or didn't get corrupted. Certainly at any point, that would be horrible.
3: I think one thing that was interesting about you mentioned like the DOD is that uh, sometimes you're uh, working with people who are outside of your area of expertise, right? In this case, it was just the way they name things, but you know, when you're working in these sorts of complex environments where you're doing like really challenging work, uh, you're working with a team of experts, some of whom know things that you just don't. Absolutely. I think, yeah. And, uh, you know, I I mean, I have to get into this at work all the time and I think we all do. Um, So I I think when we were doing the, when we were talking about this earlier, like prior to doing the episode, uh, you brought up, for example, with the DVD case that you brought in some external experts for that. Um, There were a few other like, not external, but like, you know, outside of your area of expertise. Um, And then again, for um, the, like for other cases, like that's something that we talk about a lot on this show is that, you know, you're not an expert in everything. You're at best an expert in a couple of them.
0: Absolutely right there, Sam. Uh, You can't be an expert at everything. And I know as an FBI agent, there were so many different things that we investigated. We develop a level of expertise in certain things, but but not in everything. And so even within the Bureau, we have people who are experts on, say, foreign countries, say Russia or Iraq or China. Um, we have analysts who study those countries, who work in those countries, um, or work, I should say work on those countries. And we have uh, anthropologists, photographers. We have forensic experts, computer scientists. We have a lot of people that we hire uh, to do some of the things that we just can't. I know for many years, I worked in uh, computer hacking and intellectual property matters. The, the unit was called CHIPS, at least uh, the DOJ. The Department of Justice is kind of our parent company, if you would. And uh, they had a CHIPS unit. Uh, different from the old television show about the California Highway Patrol, uh, but uh, <laughs> it was on com- for computer hackers. And in working computer hacking, I can't be an expert in every operating system, in every piece of code that's out there. And so I would have to rely on people and tell them what the information that I needed and ask them, how would I go about getting this and can you help me? And that's a very important tool to say, can you help me? And uh, it happens in almost everything that we do. Uh, I recall a situation where we were looking for a body in in a basement of a home. And and as I say this stuff, I realize that, you know, uh, this is probably strange for your audience to be talking about such situations. (laughs) But for FBI agents, this is like Tuesday, you know? (laughs) So uh, we talk about these situations that seem totally out of control and and unusual, but for us, that's just what we do for a living. So uh, in this instance, we were looking for a body in in, uh, someone's basement, and I uh, was doing some digging with my team, and one of my team members came to me and said, hey, we found some bones, and that's really, uh, uh, I mean, finding bones on a body dig is money. And so uh, I said, hey, let's, let's take a look at them. And I looked at them, and I'm not an expert in bones. And I didn't think they were human bones, but um, I had to make sure. So I called an anthropologist. And we have an anthropologist at our laboratory in Quantico, Virginia. And I gave her a call and asked her to verify whether these were human bones or not. So I uh, texted her some photographs. And she said, "Nope, they're not human bones. keep digging and so uh we kept digging, um even though uh people were trying to speculate that there were these were human remains, and word got out that we had found bones, and the next thing I know, there were helicopters in the air, and reporters were everywhere and uh it was quite a crazy crime scene, um but we had to let them know quickly that they were animal bones, not human bones and then everybody left the crime scene,
1: so.
0: <laughs> but you do have to work with those experts. And and interestingly enough, um, for that same particular crime scene, we have a team at Quantico, um, which is where our academy is, where the FBI laboratory is in Quantico, Virginia on the Marine base. Uh, we have a team there that came up in a truck that's the size of a fire engine And they're an engineering team that this house was ready to collapse. So they shored it up. Uh, It was tough to breathe in the basement because of all the dust. So I asked them to put in an air filtration system, which they did. And uh, somebody locked themselves out of their car. And I said to the team leader of of this uh, team, hey, can you get her back into her car? He said, sure, boss, we'll take care of it. And so uh, we, we, they were experts at almost anything I needed. And in fact, the guy said to me, he said, you just tell me what you need. If you need me to pick this house up and turn it around, I can do it. It'll take some time. But if that's what you need, we'll do it. And they were just go-to people. And uh, so we have those different areas of expertise on staff. So. You have to rely on people and teams outside of your area of expertise. There's no clear example.
2: Joe, I have recently heard about the concept of a curbside consult in medicine. Um, have you guys kind of talked about what that, uh, It's so, so it's kind of, um, it's, it's like when you're in residency and say you're focused on one specialty, right? And, um, or you're like an ER doctor and somebody comes in and they have a heart condition or they're talking about heart palpitations or something and you're not quite sure what it is so you reach out to your friend that you went to medical school with that's a cardiologist and maybe they call it something differently at at something different at Penn but it kind of sounds like Scott what you were talking about was kind of like a curbside consult in a way where you're like I think I know what this is my expertise I'm looking at these bones but I'm going to reach out to the expert kind of and chat asynchronously just to confirm. You can call
0: it phone a friend, you know? So like (laughs) in the old game shows, you know, phone a friend, get some info. Um, We usually say, oh, I know a guy, you know, or call somebody who can help us out, (laughs) you know? You need.
2: Sam usually says, I know a guy and we get
3: concerned. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, sometimes that guy's Joe at work. I was working on something, you know, And uh, I was like, oh, you know what? I know maybe Joe can help me with this. (laughs) Like sitting there they're texting Joe. It it, I think, our chat for the podcast. I'm like, can you help me with this thing? Yeah. For (laughs) for
0: us, we would uh, do those consults um, on a regular basis at every crime scene I think I've ever, uh, ever been to. You know, it was, um, hey, I know a guy who can open the safe. Or, you, you know, or I, I know a guy who can get us a bulldozer real quick, you know, and so <laughs> it's a strangest, it's the strangest <laughs> thing, but, you know, it, you need to know those guys. <laughs> so you got to rely on outside expertise, no doubt about it.
1: Absolutely. And uh, for, I, I, I haven't actually had a chance to be on the clinics yet. That's coming up in uh, uh, about six months for me. Uh, and so i haven't really experienced the curbside consult myself not that i should be curbside consulted for a while um like i i'm not a doctor yet in that sense um sure you but are from
3: from a okay. research hey don't talk over pickles intro we're not a doctor yet true this whole thing
1: hey not yet give it another <laughs> eight years and or seven years at this point um but yeah um the um but regarding like from a research perspective that's absolutely true too like as a scientist like we had uh like some problems that we were trying to figure out and we we reached out to um a, a close coworker of my pi and they like they they gave us some very good very helpful information that really isn't like published but like a lot of people in the field just kind of know it which is another problem in and of itself but um it it's just kind of like how how things happen, and we getting since we were getting into a new field uh, that we hadn't really done stuff in before, we needed to understand this information that a very small community of people knew. And uh, so it's things like that that in the sciences, like you're going to be like you're always working with people like who are like outside of your area of expertise. Like in my current research, I'm working with chemistry people. I'm working with like people who know how to work with mice, people who understand, like, cell biology, people who understand physiology, like, all that kind of stuff, um, pharmacists, like, it, it's, It you, you deal with a lot of different kinds of expertise and perspectives in science, and I think this, like, regardless of what you're doing, um, like, whether you're a a federal investigator, whether you're a bench scientist, whether you are... A uh, electrician, or a uh, like a chef, or anything really. You're consulting with other people,
0: and I think it's especially important uh, for your audience, especially as young scientists, um, to understand that. That it, I've heard this my whole life, but it's really hard for me to ask for help. But if you get over that earlier in your career, it will benefit your career in all aspects of your life just a word of advice.
2: I work with one woman and and she said this to me and I say it to myself all the time now. She just looked at me one day. I was like, you know, we were talking about kind of that concept and how it's hard to ask for help. Um, And she just looks at me and she goes, I love help. I love it when people help me. And I think about that all the time because like you said, you can't do everything on your own.
0: Exactly. Great way to look at it. And uh,
1: kind of transitioning a little bit, like it seems that we've we talked about a few uh, really important things. The this idea that like you really shouldn't get caught up in the status quo. You have to keep an open mind, consider all your evidence before you make a conclusion. Uh, if you can't get to where you're trying to go one way, try a different way. Like if you can't if you're if you maybe you don't have what you need to test your hypothesis, try doing a slightly different experiment. Um, or in this case uh make your build your own store and uh drive down the price of illicit <laughs> uh movies on the street um then also work in the importance of working with teams outside your area of expertise and kind of come to this last little bit where like we have all all our evidence all together um like we, like as as agents, we have gathered all of our information like we've written up a affidavit um like to share our information with a judge. Um, Like what kind of, and like how, what is, what is that process like? I feel like from my perspective, it seems a little similar to the concept of peer review in a sense. Obviously there are a lot of differences, but I want to hear your thoughts. Yeah. I
0: I don't know a lot about peer review, um, but I do know a lot about a judge's review, uh, which can be fairly critical. And I'm guessing (laughs) peer review is also somewhat critical. Um, but oh yes. It, it, in the end, you, you mentioned writing an affidavit. And for those who don't know, that's a, a listing of facts that outline your probable cause as to why somebody should be, for instance, arrested or indicted or um brought uh or have charges brought against them. Um and, and it lays out the facts that support those charges. Um that's what an affidavit is. Uh, when you get to that point in an investigation, you're pretty much done, and uh, you have to bring all your evidence to bear. Now, that's all your evidence. It doesn't always mean that it's all available evidence. It's certainly never all the evidence you want, uh, but it's the evidence that you have to go with. So you have to support your hypothesis or your charges. In in my case. Uh, with the evidence that you have, and and line that up in a methodology that makes sense to a judge, that would make sense to a jury. I, I've had some uh, computer crime cases that were fairly technical in nature, and making that understandable to a jury can be often very difficult, especially for jurors who Uh, There are peers, but they don't have the same experiences or knowledge that we do. Um, So we have to find a way to make that palatable to them. You may have to do the same thing in peer review in that you change the way you write about something or somebody points out that your data may uh, indicate that this paragraph needs to be tweaked a little because it's not exactly what you said. And and if I'm beyond my area of expertise, yes. let me know. Um, <laughs> that,
3: that, that, that's no, a very that, polite problem. That, that's right a now. very,
1: that's a, yeah, that, that, that's, okay. that's accurate. Let's just say it's usually reviewer two. Very, <laughs> very <laughs> I critical. Very critical. I haven't had
3: Margaret, my girlfriend, who's been on an episode in the past. She's had a lot of papers go through review. I have it but
1: yes reviewer two <laughs> for for context yeah, there's this inside joke in the scientific community that usually people have two to three like uh, anonymous scientists reviewing the manuscript that they're submitting to the journal uh and usually there's kind of a joke that like reviewer number two is always ah. incredibly harsh uh like like literally the- none of this evidence supports the data level harsh uh, or or none, of, none of this data supports hypothesis level harsh, which is a little bit of an exaggeration. But like sometimes you do encounter that, and uh, it's it's your responsibility to um, either get more information. Or re- reassessing. I, I, I know that, that guy. Oh. Uh,
0: we we call him uh, redacted. <laughs> so <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> are you allowed not, to say but, that? Hey, it's it's kind of. <laughs> <laughs> there have been many cases <laughs> where that's been true, you yeah. <laughs> know. So I, <laughs> <laughs> I had redacted once. I got the mafia <laughs> accountant. To confess, and I had the my, the uh, documents and the accountant, and he's like, "Well, who's going to corroborate the accountant?" I said, "Listen." you knucklehead or words to that effect. (laughs) You don't, you don't get more than the accountant for the mob. I mean, that's all you get, you know? (laughs) And if you can't do it with that, well, how can I believe him? I, I, I can't help you. I can't help you. Oh my gosh. I had worked so hard to get this guy to flip. And, uh, and uh, redacted. Didn't think it was it was uh, uh, good. So yeah, we call guy number two. what is it peer review number two? That person review number two. Review yeah, number yeah. two. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I, I I was at a conference Sorry. in Phoenix about a year and a half ago, right before I retired, and uh, uh, it was all old FBI agents, retired FBI agents. It was the society of former special agents. And some of these people were in their 80s and 90s. And I made a joke about redacted, not charging one of my bad guys based on the evidence that I had. And I said, what, that's never, ha- that's never happened to any of you, right? And they roared. I couldn't get the room back for five minutes. You know, <laughs> they thought that was the funniest <laughs> thing because it had happened to every single one of them often. So uh anyway, we're off track a little bit, but uh, so, we, it
3: well that we don't have that person
1: though. It sounds very much like a
0: reviewer yeah. number two. Yeah, well. Let, let's cut For it sure. off as oh, yeah. I know that guy. <laughs> 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 sorry to sorry to bring up yeah, uh, a yeah, traumatic experience. childhood memories still hurt, uh, you know. Young young agent memories <laughs> are still painful. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: But yeah, Uh, wow. What a, what a time. I like, I think, uh, I always, um, I mean, dad, you've been sharing stories with me for what, like, I mean, I've been around for 25 years at this point, probably able to understand a little bit about what you're saying since I was about, uh, or since (laughs) I was about five maybe. Um, and so like 20 years of all these stories and I'm still learning new things like every day. And, uh, oh absolutely and i think um i hope that every, everyone here can kind of see like there there obviously the um like the role of a investi like a like a investigator who's looking into crimes and things like that is very different from a investigator that is trying to understand biology or physics or anything like that but there are a lot of parallels uh, in just the way you think and so i think it's um very i'm very proud to have uh learned uh, a good amount of the way i go about things from such a great model um in my dad uh and also um very very glad that you got to join us to share a lot of your yeah, stories this has with been fun else as well um yeah um i think another thing a uh, little little plug here is uh now that uh my dad has um Stopped working for the the FBI. He has now taken up a new pastime in his uh, his ability or his uh, new capacity as a YouTuber. Um, specifically, uh, his YouTube channel is called the XFed Homestead. Um, you should all take a look at that XFed EX E X F E D Homestead, all one word, um, and it's on YouTube. Um, this is all about just home- the 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 uh, the recent trend of homesteading, kind of building a little, how would well, It could be a lot
0: of different things depending on uh, how engaged you are in it. But for me, it's about uh, growing some good food uh, organically uh, on the, uh, what I, I used to uh, kind of tongue in cheek call it a homestead, uh, but we have a suburban house uh, <laughs> outside of Boston and uh, uh, not really the country as as you would think of it although years ago it was an agricultural community. But uh, we raise chickens and uh, we get fresh eggs. We uh, like to cook good food. And uh, so in this channel, I uh, talk about uh, growing food and uh, building stuff. And so, because I like carpentry and home repair and I'll do those things as well. And, uh, and today I actually did my first cooking show. So <laughs> so we'll see how that goes over. Um, but, uh, you know, you have Excited. to enjoy what you're growing and there's no other way to enjoy it than cooking it. So uh, I figured I'd show my, my uh, viewers that as well. And so uh, it's a creative outlet for me. And something that has nothing to do with bad guys, nothing to do with guns and craziness in the world. It's just uh, uh, growing plants and food and raising chickens and uh, uh, life is good. So uh, that's what it's all about for me. Your one
2: stop YouTube shop for all things (laughs) dad advice. We could do that. Everyone (laughs) go
3: check it out. I take it, Natalie, you've watched a bit. I have.
0: I've tuned in. One of my best subscribers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, just also, also, uh, he, I, I think uh, my, my dad was not, like, he didn't explicitly ask for this plug. Just, just putting it out there. I think uh, we're all enthusiastic about the channel having seen it. Herself. It's been fun. So yeah, um, it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And after all these years uh, working in the FBI, doing a lot of crazy things, I think you deserve deserve a little downtime is good for months. everyone
0: Rich. remember that you scientists out there absolutely. a little downtime is good for everyone
1: oh so. yeah. yeah okay
0: yeah we need yeah. that reminder. you got to get your head <laughs> off the lab bench <laughs> yeah. once in a while you know
1: mm-hmm. absolutely but yeah uh natalie you want to
2: yeah. I'll wrap, wrap it, up. it up. You can find our, t- uh, our team at interactome underscore media on Instagram or at the interactome on, I guess it's X now formerly Twitter. Um, <laughs> and, uh, Twitter. yeah. And, uh, Sam, what's our mastodon?
3: It's interactome at com. We're, we're also, on,
1: uh, we're also on YouTube as well. And, uh, we're available wherever podcasts are, are shared. Um, because this is free, not sold.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank- and
2: we'll see you next time. Yeah.
0: Hey, thanks, thanks a lot. A lot. This us, was Dad. a lot of fun. Thank you guys for inviting me.